Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you on board this morning. Well, it's morning here where I am. It could be any time on the world where you are. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, remember you can always head over to officehours.global on the web. That's our primary web portal for more information and links about the show. Second hour today, our topic is what is a studio? And it's a pertinent question since many of our Office Hours regulars now have private Zoom studios where once long ago uh, an audio recording or video production or computer telepresence studios used to be a large and massively concept uh, complex concept nowadays a lot of people are dedicating home space for this type of work so that's what we'll be talking about in our second hour today we are of course just starting our first hour where we address audience questions so let's dive in mitch what's first up today Thank you, Bill. First up, Samuel Nordvik from Norway. First question is, can you explain what is an EDID or EDID and why it's important for a video signal? Jonas Dottel is going to start us off. Jonas? The EDID makes sense in the context of an HDMI connection. In HDMI, you have a sync. That's where the video goes to. And the source, that's where the video is coming from. And EDIE is a protocol that tells the sync, so let's say your ATOM, what the source can produce. So they, it's a handshake that allows you to agree on one specification of data transmit. So you can say, hey, I actually can only do HDMI 1.0. I can do 2.0. So you can say, I can do 1080p 30 at 60 hertz, at 49 hertz. I can do it at this. I can do it in this color. I can do XYZ. I can do it in DVI mode, or I can do it in an... Uh, VGA mode, there's like really old modes still in the um, HDMI spec. And one of the things that is interesting with the Atom Mini, you saw um, a while back, you had all these, the Atom now works with more monitors and everybody was like, how does that work? Well, it's them editing the EDID to do some trickery to get monitors to also accept it. Because one of the common issues with video equipment is we work in 25 or 30 FPS. The 25 or 30 hertz if you talk about computer screens. And most computer screens uh, want like 50 to 60 hertz. Um, and that's where you get an issue with the EDID. And then um, if you have an issue with an EDID, and sometimes uh, devices think they're clever and set it automatically, there's these uh, little boxes. Um, this is a Dr. HDMI, UHD, and Full HD. And then you can set a specific source um, edit and that way you can fix an edit it won't change there's no automatic negotiation between it it won't try something higher and then settle for something lower and um, it's a really great tool to fix issues um, yeah that's basically what an edit is and if you have problems with it with it you probably see it when you're switching in an hdmi matrix you're gonna see that it blinks because it needs to uh, set to a new edit. That's where something like this can help, or if you don't get an output at all. And then on top of the edit, there's also the HTCP protocol, which then is like content protection on top of it. That can also be part of that whole issue with HDMI cables. But edit is like, if you don't have an HTCP issue, edit is where it tells you, hey, this is what I can do. And then uh, the sync gets to decide, hey, Please send me this. Courtney Gooden. Good explanation. Uh, thanks, Jonas. Uh, it stands for uh, uh, Extended Display Identification Data. And if you want to know more about it and exactly what the format of it is, Xtron has a good website that explains it. And it's all carried 
most of the EDID is carried in a 128-byte package, which goes back from the monitor to the uh, computer or the ATEM, and in our case, uh, that is displaying it. And the the bulk of the data is here in these five bytes here. It has video input type, horizontal size, vertical size, display gamma, uh, supported features, uh, and then the color chrominance is uh, actually a little more uh, nine bytes down here with the color space information. But, uh, you know, it's a fairly compact little uh, table of data that shoots back from your monitor to the uh, to the PC. And of course, as he, as he spoke about, as Jonas spoke about, is that thanks to the EIAJ and the Producers Association back when they insisted that any digital display device be able to uh, respect content protection and put in uh, anti-copy protection. That that gave us the uh, encryption that we all hate. So when switching between HDMI devices, it forces it. They are forced to go out and handshake and check the EDID to see if this is a recorder or not. And if it's a recorder, it turns off the uh, if it respects. Uh, the uh, digital protection, it'll turn off the video signal, which is why a lot of times on HDMI, you will not get a signal in. It's because the copyright protection bit has been set. Mitch Hill. As about as comprehensive an answer as you're going to get. Uh, the only other thing is that they, these little boxes don't all strip out the HDPC. Um, some do, some don't. The cheaper ones seem to do it unintentionally or intentionally. They're not, I guess, allowed to advertise that they do it. I'm sure the uh, the higher-end ones don't do it because they don't want to run afoul of the uh, copyright protection people. And as Courtney said, I just wanted to point out, I use one in order to fake my source into thinking that it's talking to a 1080 HD uh, monitor when actual fact it isn't. Okay, I think we did a pretty darn amazing job of explaining that. Hopefully, Samuel, that exactly answered your question. Let's move to the next one. And we have another one from Samuel Nordvik here from Norway. Thoughts on panning a close shot following a walking person versus cutting to a full body shot? Courtney, start us off. It kind of depends. I guess this amounts to your personal uh, uh, feelings about it. If the background is detailed and far away so that you have parallax, uh, panning with a close-up of the person is distracting because you get uh, seasick. Seeing that moving background going the opposite direction as he walks back and forth, and you have a good camera operator that has to lead them the right amount and not lose them out of frame. Uh, so I kind of prefer going to a medium shot if you've got a pacer on stage, you know, where he's pacing back and forth nervously and changing direction constantly. Uh, I prefer cutting to a little wider shot until they settle down than cut to a close-up once they stop. Chris Fenwick. I really like the... Um... Excuse me, the comment that Alex made the other day, uh, Alex, you were talking about uh, a good uh, people who are coached well on stage, uh, that when they're walking, I'm probably not really getting everything that you're saying. When you stop to make a point, it's more impactful. And I think as a as a speaker, as a orator, as somebody who's trying to uh, uh, uh influence people, you should know every trick possible to um, to make your message get across better. Now, as a director calling this, you know, you probably don't get to talk to that person at that level, and they're going to deliver what they're going to deliver. My argument would be 
don't let them walk out of frame. And if somebody's pacing too much, don't don't try and cover it too close. Cover it safe. Don't let the guy, you know, bump his nose on the edge of the frame. Just shoot it wide enough to cover it. If he delivers better, as Alex was explaining last week, you could take advantage of it. But you're going to get what you get from most presenters. Mitch Hill. Uh, there's a famous example of trying to do a pan uh, and keep the actor or uh, actress in uh, in focus. Uh, Midnight Cowboy, when John Voight opens up, he's uh, doing quite a bit of walking. He's actually walking in a circle around the camera so they can keep the uh, the same focal length the whole time. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, and it depends on yeah the, whether it's f- feature film or a uh, online. If you're doing a feature film, there's a lot of reasons from a, a mood perspective to try to keep it in in a in a frame. If you're talking about on stage, um, then uh, you know a, a lot of times what we do is we do waist up. So it's not really full body; it's just waist up. Waist up gives us enough room to let give someone a place to go. Um, we don't usually try. We try not to go to the if we if we're going to a full body on someone, we're usually doing a wide establishing shot of the stage, which is a lot more than the full body. And then we come back to a waist up, and then if, again, if they stop, then we're going to go chest up to um, to get a you know to get that that really close up, which is very impactful, as Chris said, and frustrating when people don't give us the opportunity to do that. But on a movie, you may you may do that um, on a lot. If you're streaming this, especially, remember that if you're moving that camera with them, and all that background is moving with it, uh, you can actually see degradation in the in the actual show. So that's the other problem that you have there. Mitch Hill. Yeah, just the only reason to use it, I wanted to add, is to infer some kind of motion or changing of the scene or moving from point to point. And then uh, for special effects, a swish, a swish pan or something like that to uh, uh, provide a transition from one scene to another. And in one of the shows, I did an explanation of a thing I called the talking camera, which is for me what I use to decide whether or not a different shot is is motivated and useful in context. To me, a camera in a fixed position panning with somebody says to the audience, watch this person as they move. A tracking shot or something like that basically says to the audience, come along with us, come along with this character as he or she moves. So it's subtly different in terms of what you're communicating to the audience, which shot that you choose. Courtney, you had another thought? Yeah, and there's the inverse of this now because you get the guys that bought the $600 slider for their DSLR and by God, they're going to use it. So the actor's standing still and they're sliding the camera left and right to keep the background moving behind them to add some interest to what would normally be a static shot. And this gets old about the fifth time they go, they ping pong back and forth, you know. Yeah. All right. I think we've covered that pretty well. Let's go to the next question. Next in, Graham Cardwell from Belfast, Northern Ireland. I've received some footage of Kids Fun Day for editing for church on Sunday. There's footage from a drone, a GoPro, and a DSLR. Any hints on the best way to approach the task would be welcome. Ambient and soundtrack audio, there is no voice needed. Chris Fenwick, start us off. Graham, this is my favorite kind of stuff to edit. Uh, First of all, what I'd do is I'd find a spine. The spine is the thing that you hang all the muscles and ligaments on. And in, in something like this, it's probably going to be a great cut of music. So that becomes the, the thing you're going to hang everything else on. Uh, basic storytelling, wide, medium, tight. Show me, if you have a drone and all the kids, show me a wide shot of the playground. Show me a cluster of kids playing and then show me a close-up of a, of a kid smiling. 
You could do that almost over and over. Don't overdo the drone. The other thing is that if if these three cameras don't match, and they likely don't, they they likely don't like match really well. What you may want to do is use them differently. Uh, the GoPro may be used, you know, like a lot of vloggers do, where they put it on a stick and they walk it around, and they may shoot a very similar style to the way the DSLR is being shot. But it could be that somebody just leaves a GoPro in a place or maybe they have like, you know, one of those stupid head head mount things, which I had never understood that. Um, but you may treat those types of shots differently. Like you may want to do the GoPro footage like black and white and letterbox or something like that. And the the DSLR may, my guess would be that the DSLR is probably going to carry most of your story. But again, it, it the GoPro could be shot very similarly in style. But take advantage of that and, and let them do it. And then listen to the music. When the music changes, the, the imagery should change. Uh, I always say that musicians, wear, they wear their hearts on their sleeve. And they understand timing and pacing and stuff probably better than we do. So hang your success on their hard work. And don't mess with the music. When the music changes, something different should happen. And it may be that you take this sequence of shots and move it over here because, boom, I want that wonderful smile on that hit in the music. So find the spine, wind medium tight, and have fun. Alex Lindsay. Yeah, all the things that Chris said. If you can go back in time, which you can't, but um, when you can do this again, uh, just remember that that uh, getting something like a Calibrate color checker passport um, for, for video is like a little little thing of color and throwing that in front of each one of your cameras, regardless of what they are, will save you a lot of time later. Um, it is, it, you, you want to make sure whatever one you get is that it, it is in the list of resolve, um, supported color checkers. And what you can do is you can just pull resolve over to it and get all the cameras fairly close together. Um, and that's going to help you a lot. Uh, you can't do it for this one, but, uh, in the future, don't think about that. Also, um, there's some, you know, um, I'm just trying to think of the, the, the new AI color tool that I, uh, um, Chris, do you know, the, you know, the, um, oh, I can't, color AI, I think. I think it's color AI that has it there that can match a lot of things really quickly. <laughs> so we're going to have them on uh, uh, to, um, and, I, and I think I'm, I'm mashing the name. I'll, I'll find it real quick and then get back to you. But it's, uh, those are the kind of things that I think we're going to end up using a lot to get uh, clips to fit together faster soon. Chris, come back. In. I'll also say uh, Alex is the technical genius, but I'm going to tell you, it's kids. Show all the kids. Show kids having fun. Uh, he, he's no, 100% nobody, right. Like, nobody's you know, like going to no care if you use color AI, color but, DuMont chart to match the cameras. They, once they see their kids, they're sold. But it... But it is nicer. It'll make you happier. Ah, <laughs> See everything in color. <laughs> just it, it, it literally. Yeah, I, I'll tell you. So in the uh, Bill, what do you call a fast turnaround edit where you have like twenty four hours to to turn something? We call them faces shows. A nightmare. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> sometimes no, they're called kidding. fast turnaround. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, quick turns. Uh, quick turns. I did my first quick turn. Edit. It wasn't, I didn't get paid for it. It was for a church group. I did my first quick turn where uh, within 24 hours of showing up, I played a video on the screen uh, for a bunch of kids uh, using a VHS recorder and a U-Matic deck that had a built-in edit controller on the front. Mark in, mark out, preview, 
perform audio video inserts in like, I want to say 1989 and, and literally turned it in 24 hours, shot it myself, which I'd learned I'm horrible at, but, uh, yeah, the, the, absolutely this stuff like this is why I wanted to edit. Uh, Alex, you want to finish up? Colorlab.ai. And we're going to get them on, on the show to talk about Colorlab.ai. It's literally you push a button and then they'll all get pretty close pretty quick. So Nice. All right, let's move to the next question. I've got a question. Uh, best soft light to use for a key light? Uh, Jonas Dottel is going to start us off, Jonas. I mean, you said best. So the Ari Skylight with appropriate amount of modifiers and uh, all of that will be I would General say general price would point, be, uh, to be honest, you know, uh, offhand. Context <laughs> of pricing, I think. Um, <laughs> in all reality, the key lights from Agato are pretty nice. Um, they produce a pretty soft light for how small they are. And especially um, one of the things with the key lights is just so flat. So you can actually get them pretty close to the wall and have some distance there. Um, if you go more into the YouTube space, you see a lot of like the Aperture 100Ds with a big light dome. But let's be honest, like how much space do you have behind your camera right now? Because I have like a couple centimeters. It's enough for the light uh, key lights. So that's what I would choose. Like if you have the space and build a studio around it, I would get like 100D with a big light dome and a big light modifier. Otherwise, just get a key light. Alex. Yeah, the the um uh the ones that, that I was happiest with were was actually a, a 10 foot by 10 foot uh frame that had that was then pearled and then we had two image pro uh two image 80s which are eight four four foot um each one of them is eight four foot uh bulbs behind it and that was the best fill that I've ever used. <laughs> if you're looking for the best, uh, it did take up half the room to get it all set up, but we didn't, we weren't talking about space or price. So, um, so that was the best fill. It, 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 we used it to make it to basically simulate being outside. So the idea was they were sitting out on a porch. We needed a lot of, a lot of light. I mean, HMIs are used for that as well across, you know, and you can bounce those and so on and so forth. Um, the ones that we use the most in when we're doing interviews and so on and so forth, I believe they're called the light pads and we covered them at, at a uh, Cinegear and I, 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 light pad is what sticks in my head, but I don't think it's there. They're a fabric with, with LEDs and we pop them open and stick them in. And, um, we've been super happy with those. Uh, again, they're not the cheapest, uh, solution, but they roll up into almost nothing and, uh, they're really easy to transport and really easy to set up and they're very light. Mitch Hill. Uh, for reference that airy that uh, was being referred to is about a $25,000, uh, light fixture before you add all the, uh, extras that they have. Um, I, I like soft light because it does that nice little wrap around your face. Um, I kind of splurged on the key light that I have in my studio. We'll talk about it later. But it's a light panel, uh, Astra Soft. And I have a Chimera to go on it if I want, if I really want to uh, balloon it out. But, um, yeah, to put it in perspective, in a small room, not a studio. So there you go. Courtney? Yeah, what I see being used the most on the corporate stuff that I'm doing is people are, and you see it on 60 Minutes. You know, if you watch 60 Minutes, a lot of times they'll cut to a one wide shot where they show the entire lighting setup and the mics over each person doing an interview. And they're usually these uh, uh, aperture lights or, with, or something similar with a light dome, which is this expandable umbrella which uh, comes with a variety of diffusion that'll go on the front of it. It even comes with a grid that you can make it a little more directional. 
And uh, it does take up a lot of room. The aperture light itself is about 1300 bucks, and I think the dome is a, a couple of hundred bucks, $219, uh, if you want to add it. And it's easy to travel with. That's why a lot of uh, uh, news gathering organizations use them, because they give you a nice, soft, directional light that you can control, and you can fold it up and throw it on an airplane and go somewhere. And if I had only one light that I could take on location for corporate work and things like that, it would undoubtedly be the light panels, Astra's big brother, the Gemini. I have found that to be the single most flexible light. The only downside is that it's heavy and a little bit hard to travel with. But in terms of quality of light, quickness of setup, and able to match anything you run into on location, that has been my go-to for about seven years now. So let's go to the next question. From Eddie Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. Eddie asks, Prime Days are coming up. Any gear that you're waiting to buy? Jonas, what are you looking for? I would say the only things that are really great to buy on Prime Day is Primes, uh, like Amazon's own stuff, like the Amazon Basic, their own little HDMI player devices, and like Amazon Fire tablets, and that type of stuff that they just throw out at like, less than cost everything else you uh, make sure that you check the price because most of those had a price hike just before it and then are going lower this year also is the first time that some websites outside of amazon are gonna offer prime day because there's a new agreement in the um, little thing so if you do payments with amazon you can now also host prime day on your website so that might have an impact but yeah just check if you actually need it because you can save a lot of money by not buying the thing that you didn't need just because it was a hundred bucks cheaper and then make sure that it's actually a hundred bucks cheaper and not like raised by 200 bucks last week and now it's cheaper. Wait, what, a retailer would do that? Uh, Alex, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I tend to only buy a little glue, exactly what Jonas is saying. So it's little bits of things that I think that I know are cheap because I buy them often enough. And oftentimes I bought them before and I'm buying, oh, I'm going to buy a couple extra ones of those. Uh, I usually don't spend that much money on Prime Day. I, I spend probably maybe 50 to $100 on, again, little cables, uh, little connectors, little things that I already know the price for, things I bought in the past that I just want to back up for. Um, but I, I'm very distrusting of the overall pattern of, of, the, of the thing. So I don't, I don't engage that much. Courtney? Yeah, I agree with Jonas. Uh, just go for your uh, the Amazon manufactured uh, devices. What I always do is I always pick a couple of these up, uh, the Fire Stick 4K Max, uh, which you can see at Prime Day prices, $24.99, 25 bucks. That's 55% off what they normally sell for. And uh, they make good gifts, great, great stocking surfers. But I will warn you one thing. If you, have, if you are a Prime member and you order a bunch of these, let's say, Make sure you tell you check the little box that says it's a gift. Otherwise, they automatically set it up and link it to your Prime account before they ship it to you. So if it comes out Oops. of the box and you give it to somebody and they start it up, hey, they're on your Prime account. They're linked to your Prime account and start ordering ordering a whole lot of stuff over Amazon. So be very careful. Oh, I don't want to know how you figured that out. But <laughs> okay, buyer beware. Let's go to the next question. Jack Rupel in Breckenridge, Colorado, has a question. Alex listens to podcast or audio at two and a half times speed in order to have material content that is dense, re densely recorded at two times speed. Gets rid of music, intro branding, dependent clauses, bulleted lists, attention grabbing slides, wipes transition sounds. Uh, Jonas. Uh, and I think it's a, we're really in the era 
of it's no longer hey here's a quick intro and in this question i'm going to answer this question and this is going to be about this and this is going to be another 30 second intro and then you say hello again like the redundancy of if i watch some old videos where like there's like this the first two minutes is just welcome and welcome again and all of that um algorithmically that isn't working anymore so like you already see people cutting more and more of that out um especially for generation tiktok where you have like super fast if you don't get catched in like the first two seconds you swipe away i think there's a natural um benefit for people starting to do more dense content and then like maybe stretch it a little at the end but uh yeah alex yeah, I will say that my own way of watching things has definitely affected my how I build things. So I, I you know, I um, uh, I don't want to have any intro. You know, like if someone has some kind of intro, you know, I just I'm just like fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. You know, just just get past this. You know, okay, where are we getting? And and literally, not even the intro of "Hi, I'm here for the show." the setup video that tells me what the text is that you had underneath your video. I don't want to hear that either. Like, you know, like, like, I don't, like, I don't care about that, that part, um, you know, for a short video. And, and I have to say that on YouTube, if I see a video longer than eight minutes, it better be really good. You know, like, you know, like it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if I can commit that much time to something. So, um, so I think that that is, uh, I do listen to it really fast, which makes, um, I didn't even know what the sound, the music was for all the WWDC videos until at some point I, I, I got into the app, the WWC app, and it won't, it doesn't have a 2X. And I was like, wow, this music sounds so warped. But I realized it was because I'd been listening to it at 2X the, you know, the entire, the entire time. So um, anyway, so I, I, I'm, I think that we, you know, it, it depends on the kind of, of, of music or the type of content as well. Uh, I don't listen to, you know, so for, uh, this American Life is a good example. It's probably the best audio show made. You know, This American Life, uh, Radio Lab. You know, there's a couple of these that are way more budget and way more time than most of us have to spend on a on a show. I mean, I don't know what the budget is, but it's a lot. And they work on these shows for six months. I listen to that at one x. <laughs> so so it's because there's so much going on that I can that it fills it. But if someone's just talking, I usually want to sp- I want to speed that up a little bit. It's actually easier for me to listen to. Um, than than if I listen to it at one x, and so I th- I do think that most of us have to move move away from the uh, the kind of the slow interruptive heavy heavy content. Next, oh Courtney, Courtney, um, yeah, if you're talking about video video podcasts, uh, I've transitioned to this app called Smart Tube Next. You can get it on GitHub. You have to sideload it, and it runs great on those twenty five dollar uh, Fire Sticks four K. Uh, it will automatically skip uh, intros, self-promotion, uh, <laughs> built-in uh, live reads that are commercials inside, and it eliminates all of YouTube's advertising pre-rolls, post-rolls, and middle rolls as well. You only get the main content, and it has a great setting for speed. You can change the speed to anything, and then whenever you hear, hit the fast play button, it'll go to your selected speed and play back the video at one and a half or two or however however fast you want it to play. Smart Tube next, available on GitHub. Chris Fenwick. Hey, Alex, I have a question. I, I was going to watch episode one this weekend, but I don't have the two hours and 16 minutes to, to spare. What's the best way to watch it at 2x speed? I just want to get through it. 
I don't really want to dwell on all that plot and story. I just want to get through. I got an hour. I got an hour and eight minutes. I watch movies at. at, I watch movies. So here's what I'm going to tell you, Alex. You know, you know, I respect you, but I'm going to tell you that there will be a day, possibly in the near future, where a study is going to a a peer-reviewed scientific study is going to come out that's going to talk about the health problems from people who listen to content at faster than normal speed. I know you do it all the time and I know why you do it. But as a friend, I'm telling you, <laughs> you need to you slow know, so, down. So what's funny is, is that, is that um, the, uh, there's actually been studies on, on re- reading faster and there are many studies that lean towards the, that uh, retention is higher between 1.5 and 2 uh, than it is at 1x because your mind is left, left less time to think about other things. So it depends on, on the way your mind works, but there are definitely studies, especially folks with ADHD, um, actually do much better at high speeds than, um, than, than at regular speeds. So, so far the studies have been going my direction. And also, but, and also I want to point out that I did look up how long episode one was <laughs> so I could, I you know, and, and I will tell accurate. you, there was a big fight because the target was two minutes, uh, two hours and ten minutes, and we went six over because there was a handful of things that needed to get to go in there. But two so hours and ten minutes saying, was the, the pod race pod was racing. Too, too long. No, it was not too long. It was five minutes too short, in my opinion. Um, so, but, ah. but, but what I will say is that I don't do this with fiction, but I don't listen to fiction either. I mean, I don't listen to, to fiction books. Like all I listen to is information. So you said retention is higher. I'm saying I'm that saying there are other that there are other health and psychological problems that are going to come out. Impatient to people around I employ you. (laughs) I don't think we're going to solve this one. For me, one of the most interesting metrics I started paying attention to was what I called TTC, time to content, because it was so egregious back in exactly what what Jonas said in the beginning of this, which was, I'm listening three minutes in and they still haven't told me anything. They've all been doing subscribe here and push this and do that. And it's such a massive waste of time that I started looking at time to content. And if it was more than four to five seconds, gone. So anyway, that's this is the world we live in now. Let's get to the next question. Here's Andy oh, Kokendorfer. Hang on just a second. Before we do that, I have completely forgot, and I want to make sure that as many people ask questions as possible. So let me just divert for a second and say, if you have questions, put them into the queue. Uh, this show is driven entirely by your questions and by people raising their hands on the questions, uh, those who are in the, the panel and also who are in the Mukana back end. So the more votes something gets, the faster we'll get to it and the more time we'll spend on it. So always remember that when it comes to office hours. All right, excuse my diversion. Mitch, dive into the next question. And it's from Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Thoughts on this preamp for the SM7B? It's at the Angry Audio, and it's called the Smooth. Let's go to Courtney Gooden. Well, I don't agree with their advertising slogan. Imagine your voice dipped in melted butter. We used to call that phlegm, and it's what you're hearing now in my voice. So, uh, It is designed supposedly for the sm 7 uh, to have enough gain, a uh, but it, they also apparently tailor the sound to make it sound a little richer, which I don't think you probably need to do with that dynamic microphone. But, um, you know, I think it's a good marketing deal, and at least I think it has enough gain to be able to use the SM7 with any type of preamp. Mitch Hill? Yeah, Courtney's right, but uh, here's the thing. This is marketed towards broadcasters and radio people, and all radio people, myself included, 
want to sound better than they actually are. So there's always some magic box from some company that's going to process EQ, uh, sprinkle some pixie dust on, and that's what they promise in their marketing literature, that they're going to add some kind of uh, quality that the microphone either doesn't have or has little of, and then increase your voice. Here's the point, is that you can, if you're not James Earl Jones, you're never going to sound like James Earl Jones. But I like the box. It's uh, it's definitely in the processing. Uh, it's done by a guy named Cornelius Gould, who does uh, used to do all the Omnia boxes, and uh, uh, he's now working with the folks at Angry Audio. Everything that Angry Audio does, I have to tell you, it's very clever and very well done. And I think there's a little bit of the Chameleon 4 in there also. So the idea here is processed audio, um, emphasizing certain aspects of your voice to make it better. They have a little thing they call sparkle that they can add to it. I like the idea of having sparkle on your voice, but I have no idea what it would sound like. Alex. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Alex. I'm just surprised that they don't have a USB out. Like, like you just you have this great preamp, and all you need is an, a, a D to A converter and a plug-in to your to your computer, and you would have an interface. Um, and I think that they would sell five times more with a great all the great electronics that they have, and they just added that USB out. I think they'd go a long way. Uh, Mitchell, you had a last follow-up. Yeah, I just wanted to mention it's got analog out AECBU, and I believe it has LiveWire, which is a proprietary uh, right it's digital just, source. Just now, but we still now need a, a something, another interface to get us to get into a computer. You know, like that's the, you know, anyway. I'm sorry, I'm stuck watching Chris Fenwick de-dustify his uh, headphones for the next question. So, next question. From Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand, it's winter here. I've got all the windows and doors closed, but I still get dust settling on mixers and amps, and I'm assuming dust gets into everything. Jacks, sliders, XLR inputs, best ways to periodically clean them. A paintbrush is good for surfaces, but not in jacks, etc. Alex, start us off. So I'm going to give you the hard truth. Um, I believe the last stat I read was that 70% of dust in your, in your house is skin. So it's your skin. So, oh, so you're, you you're have to windows. say that. I know. So, so any dry skin. And so, uh, so when you're when you're looking at it, you know, and some people have said higher. Some people said, oh, but seventy percent is the number I've heard in the most recently. Uh, so yeah, you're gonna. It's going to get. Um, it's going to get a little bit there. I. There are a couple of different ways that I brush things off. Um, I have uh, some pressurized air that I do over things that are relatively hardy. I do, um, you, you can get a very small uh, vacuum, these little vacuums for keyboards that I'll use for electronics that aren't very powerful, but enough to kind of pull things out. Um, and then I have this goo that I can put on things that are very complicated. It comes in a little jar and I don't know what it's called. It's, it's like, it, it's like bright yellow or something and you just push it down on everything and it just pulls everything off. Like it just, it just goes into it and then it just, you just roll it off and it pulls, it pulls everything off. It's the fastest way to clean a lot of crevices pretty pretty fast. Mitchell? Yeah, we've used that goo. We call it snot in our uh, office. Oh, nice. But uh, oh, I know. Lovely. We'll keep doing another one. Here's the best thing you can use. It's just a basic soft brush. Uh, brush it down. If you have things with uh, lots of knobs on it, I've got a Neve 8802 with a bunch of knobs on it. And I want to be careful not blowing dust into the device. I'll just brush it down, make sure it's clear, and get rid of all my skin uh, residue. Courtney? Well, I have a, a proposal that that's, may not sound healthy, but uh, as far as connectors go, I have, you always have it with you. It's your tongue called Lick It and Stick It. 
and then stick it in because a lot of people don't realize that saliva <laughs> is a is a very good cleaner because it dissolves a lot of stuff and it's highly conductive. So if you've got a uh, a mini jack or a quarter inch jack or something you can actually get your tongue into, uh, I am now not it. renting gear from Courtney. Yeah, I was going to say, stick it. note to self: do not borrow Courtney's case. Only use it on your own <laughs> equipment. <though. laughs> You got to know I who the say, licky is or a significant <laughs> Your mileage may vary on some of these suggestions. I will say that I use uh, these days a combination of a handheld Black & Decker vacuum. And the reason I do that is it has a little brush on the front of it. And it, it has a very moderate but noticeable suction to it and a can of compressed air. There are, uh, and I buy that usually from an electronic supplier because some of the compressed airs actually have Freon and other things in them. So you want to find something that is nothing but air. Um, that combination of making a negative pressure that's going to take whatever you loosen out and away and put it through a filter and something to knock it off has always worked well for me. But uh, it's good that you're de-dustifying things. As we now learn, it's probably hygienic that way as well. Let's go to the next question. Matt Halverson from Brookings, South Dakota. I work at a university and we're looking at investing in three PTZ cameras for our small studio. Recommendations for a 4K NDI capable model. Uh, let's start with Jonas. Jonas? I would look at the uh, Canon Serum 300, 500, 700. Those are really great models. They look great. The control is actually really good for integration as well. Um, the 300 is the most, is the cheapest. You have um, 4K over HDMI and NDI on there. It is NDIHX. If you want a full NDI uh, PTZ camera, I think only Berthog does that, but you probably also don't want a full NDI uh, webcam. So I would look at the CRN 300. If you have more budget CRN 500, uh, I don't think the CRN 700 gives you too much more features for your specific use case. You could go the Sony route with the FR7, or you could uh, start to look at the Panasonic's, but those will all be way more expensive than the Canon's and marginally look better. Uh, Alex. Uh, yeah, I, I, I will say that I, I, uh, have used the 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 FR7s and the Canons now. I've I've actually got to use them together, and I I would not I would say that the the difference in the look is more than marginal, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, the smaller uh, as the as that frame the FR7 is a full frame sensor, um, especially in a small studio. The the larger the sensor, the larger the studio will look. So you'll have a faster uh, you know you'll have a shorter depth of field. The autofocus on the FR7s is impeccable. Um, and, uh, and they, and so what you end up with is you can open those lenses up. Um, you can get a, there's a 28, I think to 105, I believe is the, is the size that is controllable by the camera. Um, and so, uh, in the, in a small studio, as the studio gets larger, it, the sensor size becomes less important, um, because you will have some drop off, but being able to separate people from their background is a pretty important piece of, um, of putting these together. Um, I don't use anything smaller than a super 35 under 75 feet. Um, you know, and then after that, I start to go into two thirds and other things like that. But I, I really think that, uh, all the studios we've built, and we'll talk about this in the, all the studios I've built in the last 10 years have been all super 35 or better. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's, um, the one inch sensors and three quarter inch sensors are fine, uh, or three or four thirds, uh, micro four thirds sensors are fine. But when you start getting into the larger sensors, it just looks a lot better. Um, and it looks a lot and people don't 
the average person won't know why. They'll just know that it looks more professional. It looks more quote unquote film like, um, and uh, and and they really enjoy it. I use the FR sevens. We've used the FR sevens for quite a few shows now, and we're super happy with them. Next question. Jonathan Daigle from Washington, D.C. Choosing a USB mic for a home office to sound better on Zoom and podcast interviews. Considering the MV7 and T-Bone MB7, T-Bone was once popular here, but sounds like it's fallen out of favor. Recommendations? Chris Fenwick, start us off. Jonathan, don't worry about falling out of favor. The only thing that matters with a microphone is how it makes your voice sound. Uh, I looked at the, I didn't know what the T-Bone was. I looked it too, like the MV7 has XLR and USB out, which is nice because you can go straight USB to start. If you decide to get a little bit more uh, fancy, professional, flexible, you might want to move into a mixer situation where the XLR output will be of a benefit to you. Uh, I would highly recommend you buy both. Buy both, try them. Listen to them critically. Ask your friends, neighbors, loved ones, whatever. Which one do you think sounds better? You can even come to After Hours and ask people what they think and send the one back that you uh, that you didn't like. But don't worry about what everybody... Stop playing schoolhouse, you know, schoolyard, what's cool. Just buy the one that makes you sound the best. Alex? Yeah, the T-Bone's hard to send back because it comes out of Germany, um, and it's a lot less expensive uh, than, than the uh, other ones. I have the T-Bone. And the reason it fell out of favor is a little noisier and it didn't, didn't respond as well as the MV7. So we looked at, we were looking at basically getting all uh, T-bones. I did, I did order one and uh, use it and didn't find that the audio quality to be as high as the MV7. Of course, it's a lot less expensive than the MV7 as well. Um, but we didn't find that it, it matched up as much as we thought it might. Um, and I would say it's the M. V, uh, MV7 is what I'm referring to here. Oh, that's the MV7 is the is the T-bone, right? Um, the other one I would look at is the one that I use at home, which is the Stellar X2, which is in the same price point as the um, the MV7. The problem with the Stellar X2 is that it is much less uh, uh, forgiving when it comes to your room. So you'll hear a lot more of the room. It's a large uh, you know a large condenser, and so it's going to um, pick up a lot of that uh, large diaphragm, and it's going to pick up a lot of your room. I can't use that mic when my blankets aren't up <laughs> in my room. It's also and so, not not a USB mic. I might put it. it's not a USB mic. Correct. Sorry about that. Yeah. And uh, so, if you're looking for a USB mic, you can always. I always think of all mics as USB if I have a converter for them. <laughs> so, um, and so, uh, so the um, but the MV7 so far has been the one that we've been the most successful with. I think we've bought. I think I may have bought eight of them so far, um, and uh, they've been as far as an all-around has XLR and USB. Um, they've been the, the highest quality uh, ones that we've used to date. Jeffrey Powers. So, Jonathan, uh, I would not think. Well, yeah, definitely the MV7. As you can see, I'm using it right there. But it's more about how your office is set up and how where your mic is actually going to be. Now, in this studio, I have this on a compass arm, a blue compass arm. So it goes overhead and down. Uh, down in my downstairs studio, which I'll show in second hour, I have an underslung uh, area where it, it goes underneath the table and back up. That microphone, no matter what you do, is going to get in the way for other things. So it's got to be something that's easy to move out of the way, move back into the way, and sound good for uh, any type of Zoom call or, or anything like that. So keep that in mind when you're making your purchase, because you're also going to have to think. It comes. This comes with a pretty big or long cable, 
but you're going to have to put that into effect. How, where is that going to string through your desk to get to the computer so you can plug it in? Let's get to the next question. From Kyle Hammond uh, from Chicago, Illinois. Alex mentioned using an old 2012 Mac Mini as part of his rig. What does it do and what other uses does that panel have for the old gear? Alex. For a long time, that was my Telestrator Mac Mini. So it, it basically had, um, uh, it, it was, the it didn't, Telestration isn't that hard for the Mac Mini to do. So um, so that's what I used it for. Although it now can no longer do the old, newest operating system, which we, you know, I've, which I focused on. So um, so now it is being used for display. I have it displaying web pages and stuff like that, but that's it. So if I cut to a web page, sometimes it's that Mac Mini. Um, and or if I cut to, a lot of times I use it for keeping information up in front of me, notes and so on and so forth. So not not a lot, but it's still, I'm always amazed that it's still running. <laughs> you know, so it's still, it's still, you know, after over 10 years, it still is um, doing something. I could probably do more with it. Um, sometimes I use it for play out of music and so on and so forth as well. Um, it, uh, but uh, those are the uses that I use it for right now. Courtney? I have a 2012 Mac Mini in front of me right now, and it's doing a great job at uh, raising my monitor up about uh, two and a half inches. So that's what I use mine for. <laughs> Mac Mini is a monitor stand. I hadn't thought of that before. Let's go to the next question. And it's from John Fisher in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. My home office studio is in my basement with concrete walls, floor, and ceiling. Lots of hard angles and irregular shapes. I'm struggling with eliminating echoes and getting a good sound out of my Shure MV7. Any advice? Well, this is kind of presaging our second hour where we'll be looking at home studios more specifically, but you got in this queue, so Mitchell, help them out a little. Best place to start, John, is treatment of, of the sound in your room. I like the idea of irregular shapes because that tends to diffuse the audio, but uh, there's a lot of products you can apply to the walls um, if you're not going to put a uh, sound blanket up, you can put this uh, prime acoustic material on the walls. I've got a carpeting material that I have on the walls, and I like it because um, it'll take Velcro, so I can patch little uh, squares of uh, foam where I need to deal with a, any, other, any other sound problems. Also, uh, they have drop-in ceiling tiles, if you have a drop ceiling, that uh, do a great job of deadening the room. But the best place to start to get a better sound out of any microphone is the room treatment. Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, drop ceiling is a great way. But if you have a low, a low hanging basement, that, then all of a sudden you're going to feel like you're, you've got to scrunch down to, to get into the basement. Uh, and I'm going to show you my studio in the second hour. I won't do it right now. But what, I, what I've done on my concrete is the first thing I did was I went to the hardware store and I found plastic because you can get plastic rolls. And uh, I basically lined the wall with plastic, put a, you know, put a little bit of separation in there just in case there's any moisture that gets through so I can, it can dry out. But then uh, the other thing is Owens Corning. There's a couple other brands that make these. They're, they're basically insulation panels, uh, eight foot by four foot. And on one side, it's either a blue or a pink. And on the other side, it's actually a reflective material. So you can put that up. You can actually point your lights in there and it'll reflect back and help with your lighting uh, in, your, in your room. So I've got that on walls. I've got that on floors. Uh, as for the concrete, carpeting works really well. There's also, if you go to the hardware store, you'll see these uh, two by two panels that you can put on the floor that have plastic underneath it that raise it from the concrete floor. So once again, if water comes through, it'll pass through on the bottom. And then you can have a nice hardwood floor, you put some carpeting on top of that. And then you've, uh, you've basically uh, uh, 
deadened the floor uh, problems. But the biggest thing is any type of vents, and that's the problem I always have, and that is uh, trying to cover those vents. That's where the insulation I talked about before is going to be very helpful. Uh, let's see, Alex. Yeah, so... Um, the, most of the time when I go into a room that, that's pretty hard, the first thing that I do is I get acoustic panels. These are four foot by two foot uh, panels, and I just spread the whole thing. <laughs> just cover everything with that. Uh, that's, where I, that's where I start. And then, um, and then I'll usually put bass traps in the corners, um, and that's going to keep uh, some of the bass out of there. And that's the easiest way to just kind of make most of it just go away. Um, and I've been doing that to offices for a long time. Uh, to make it perfect, you really have to tune it. Um, carpet is a must, um, you know, on the floor, you got to put carpet down, um, as thick as you're willing to roll over or do whatever you're going to do with it. Um, so, uh, I, I have just a, uh, you know, a kind of a basic, you know, basic rug. It's nothing special, um, that I, that I put underneath it just to kind of soften the, I, my office at home is all hard, you know, it's all wood and everything else. And so I had to do a lot of things to it. Now I built a little frame inside of the whole thing and ran, um, and moving blankets. I, I, it's not the prettiest thing in the world. And I plan to make it better at some, at some point in time, it just hasn't been a priority. Um, the next step up is that we've worked with some studios where we stand off the, the wall about three inches. If you have enough, it depends on how big your space is. So we stand it off about three inches. And then we put that acoustic tile that I talked about before underneath it all. Um, and then we run a uh, fabric across the front. Um, the fabric, on, in addition to that, to that acoustic foam that, that stood off from it, the whole hard part is you can't have people put their hands against it um, because they will lean things through it. Um, but if you use that, it's incredibly absor absorptive um, and it will, it will pull that out. And again, you just have to consider what you're going to do. And then with ceiling, a lot of times we either, if we don't have a drop ceiling, we'll hang cloth and so on and so forth, pretty thick cloth around to kind of just grab onto things that are going on up there. Um, and those, all of those things um, usually are pretty, pretty effective. Fenwick, you wanted to weigh in? Yeah. Uh, years ago, I cut a piece for a guy who had brought people in from all over the country into SFO, a big, big airport, to interview them. They came in, they sat down for an interview, and they left like two hours later. The interviews were shot at a hotel right next to the airport, which you say, I can't be done. It's going to be horrible. He built, this is speaking to Alex's packing blanket thing, he built a chamber of, I think, three, possibly four levels of packing blanket with air gaps in between them at an airport hotel. And I got to say, it sounded fantastic. It absolutely sounded fantastic. Don't underestimate the power of a bunch of packing blankets. They're very useful. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next question. From Nick Justishan in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is there a studio rack mount solution that provides the noise-canceling functionality we enjoy from AirPods? Alex Lindsay. Yeah, the only one that truly does what you're asking, which is it's a studio-driven system. It is rack-mountable, um, and it provides noise cancellation, is the DNS-8 from Cedar. Uh, Cedar is an eight-channel. Uh, it's a it's a it's expensive. <laughs> I think Courtney has it up there, uh, but it is the DNS eight is the and what you can do is you can use those as aux outs um, or sends uh, from your mixer and it'll go out to to this and and then send it back in. Uh, you can control all of its settings both on the computer 
uh, or in the front face. Uh, if you set them on the computer, my only recommendation is to always disconnect the computer before your show starts. For whatever reason, we occasionally get dropouts from it otherwise. Um, but uh, that is the only rack-mountable solution that I, that I know of. Courtney. It is the DNS-8. There is a cheaper little brother that comes in, in something that looks like these old Sound Devices 744T case, which is from Cedar. Uh, it's $6,000, and it supports four microphone inputs, and I think it has the same circuitry as the the bigger yeah. rack mount brother. Uh, but so if you have more of a limited budget and you only need to, you know, uh, uh, noise suppress four microphones simultaneously, uh, it doesn't have the Dante interface, I don't believe like the bigger rack mount brother does, but it uh, it will do your noise suppression in real time. Mitch Hill. Uh, Courtney, there's a even smaller one, a two-channel version of Cedar. It's available for around 3000 Okay, so there's your professional solutions for getting done what you need to get done, Nick. Let's move to the next question. Okay, I've got a question. Uh, this is a tough one. Uh, how much time and resources do you commit to creating proposals for new clients? Uh, bonus question, what's your closing percentage? Alex? Uh, when we have a client that we do a proposal for, um, sometimes my, my, usually someone that I'm doing a pitch for is, um, the budget is pretty big. You know, it's, it's well into the six figures if I'm going to be doing, if I'm doing any kind of major proposal for it. Uh, and I may spend a week on it, you know, to put it together. It's usually um, a, a doc, you know, it's, a keynote document. Um, it's built as a document so that they have it with lots of pictures and graphs. So this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And we're going to, so we're going to, you know, what, you know, all the bits and pieces. Um, my closing percentage on that is usually well over ninety percent, uh, mostly because most people don't do that. <laughs> so they, they, so I've seen the ones that other people have done, and they'll they'll put they'll send out a spreadsheet and and some text, and um, and mine is much more graphical, and and it spent I spent a lot of time on it. Um, but most of the time, I will say that that the vast majority, even the ones that I'm sending that to, uh, I was already on the inside track because I, someone recommended me. You know, like my whole business is wrapped around being recommended to people. So I don't really have, a, you know, um, and, and a lot of times my, I don't really even call it sales. I just call it interaction. Someone will call me with a question or they'll be working on something. I'll help them fix it. And I'll have them fix it for months. Like sometimes I've, I mean, a lot of clients that I've had, I may be on phone calls with them, you know, for three to six months of answering questions and helping them get, move forward. And if it turns into something that, that they want to, um, they want more support from, then they, they hire me. Uh, and sometimes they don't, <laughs> you know, sometimes it's just, it's just help. Um, but sometimes that comes back in years, I think in very long curves. So I'm not, when someone calls me, I'm not trying to sell them on doing something immediately. I'm just trying to help. And then, and then if it turns into business, it's because usually they need more help than, than what I can give on a half an hour call here or there or an hour call here or there. Um, but I, I think a lot of people are resistant to that and it's a mistake. You know, you're building a relationship with folks and sometimes it'll turn into something. I, I find it very interesting to solve their problems because it helps me think about problems in general, you know? And so, uh, so I, I would say that that's a, I don't necessarily know that that's how everybody does that, but that's a lot of times I've talked to people for a year, year and a half before anything happened. And I wasn't trying to make anything happen. I was just answering questions and I found it intellectually interesting. Now, obviously if I don't find what you're doing very interesting, I don't have all those calls. <laughs> you know, like it's like I get real busy, but, but usually if you have something that I'm interested in, then, then I'm not worried about it. It'll, it'll either turn into something or it won't. Mitch, follow up. What would you do, Alex, if you did a comprehensive proposal, which might have had some creative suggestions, and they turned you down, and then it showed up somewhere else? 
Um, so I build really complex solutions uh, following what I give to a client with the detail that I give to the client because I don't, I, I put, this is what we're going to do. I don't say this is necessarily how we're going to do it. Uh, I've seen people try that. Um, it usually rolls a 737 down a, you know, like what I'm telling them they can do is something that I can do. It's not something that everybody can do. <laughs> so without the right team and without the right tech and without the right logistics, especially if you try, if you get it less than what I charged you for, because usually my numbers are pretty, pretty fair for what I'm doing. Um, if you think that you can do it better with somebody else, you know, uh, we've had people try it and it's been pretty, uh, ugly you know, for them, you know, so, so I, uh, I give you enough detail to think that you understand how it works, but not necessarily how it actually needs to be put together. It's usually a couple missing screws. I'm going to add one thing to that, which is it's one thing to tell somebody what you can do for them. It's another to show them. Uh, I can't, our closing rate went skyrocketing when we started doing uh, videos for people a pitch video. Literally, uh, you can talk a little bit about it, introduce yourself and the rest of that, but you throw something up in front of them that you've created for them specifically. And this used to be hard to do, but with stock video and, and a good system where you have bulk stock video available, you have music available, you have someone who can write a really good script, to put something in front of them that is compelling and easy to watch that they can see, that increased our closing rate from the 30s into the 80s just by itself. People do not imagine what you can do for them. They need to see what you can do for them. And once you do that, I think it's a threshold crossing events. That's my two cents. Let's go to the next question. From Jim Barnes in Kansas City, is there a risk in having Dante on the same network as other control and or the streaming internet line? Mitch Hill, start us out. Yeah, it's a risk. I mean, I, I think you can get away with it in a pinch, but uh, it's best not to build on a uh, a shaky foundation. Uh, use a separate, uh, I, I mean, Netgear makes one for uh, a, a router you can use or a streamer that's a power over Ethernet. It's like 200 bucks. So, you know, you don't really, it's not really a financial reason to do it any other way. Alex Lindsay. You got to be on at least to be a separate VLAN. Otherwise, you can saturate the line. So you either have to, if you're going to do it on the same network, you need a separate VLAN. Uh, but in general, I would say that you don't want to, you want to, when we're really building out one that matters, we keep the Dante on entirely separate line of copper. Next question. From Dave Burke in Alexandria, Virginia. Virginia, how would you tackle this in terms of staffing and tech? I want to shoot a live panel Q&A and send out video highlights on social media during the event, like within a few minutes of them happening. Courtney. Well, the only real way to do this is have an EVS system and a talented EVS operator and take the output of that EVS and have a separate person that's cataloging and marking the pieces that you want to output on the EVS and sending them out to a streaming server uh, to post them on social media somewhere directly. Uh, that's the only, in order to do this, you need to be able to record what you're shooting, obviously, or live streaming, and uh, continue recording while you're editing and taking snippets of that and sending it out. So Jeffrey your device has to be able to record and playback at the same time. Sorry about that. Jeffrey Powers? I've actually, I actually did this a few weeks ago. <clears throat> Excuse me, a few weeks ago. It was uh, pretty cool. Um, so basically, and a lot of software uh, can do a lot of this stuff. NDI is perfect for this type of thing. Um, and it also depends on if you want 
social media to be vertical or horizontal video. Now, what we did was uh, the main person was doing the live stream and then sending out an NDI feed. You can also do a, an HDMI feed out as well. But then it came into my computer in which I was making vertical video. So what I had to do was make sure that the person was tracked into the center and then create the content and record it from there. The video that I recorded then went to another person who would do the touch-up editing putting the tips and tails and all that other good stuff and sending it out. So it really was, uh, they were getting social media out there. And, you know, more people on the editing part, the faster you get that, that last part out. Because as the session's going, that can only go a certain speed. There's no way to speed it up or, or slow it down. So by the time I get it, I'm, I'm putting it in a container that they can use and then hitting record, hitting stop, that's going to the editor. They're, they're putting the tips and tails and sending it out from there. Alex and Chris are going to finish this up here. We just hit the top of the hour. So, Alex? Yep. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of different pieces of software like Snapstream and Grabio uh, that will you can stream to. So you just do RTMP and stream into it. And they have a little suite that you can actually use to be cutting clips. And we see this. I don't use it that much myself, but we definitely see it used in social media events or social pointed events that we use. And those are putting out clips in real time because being streamed to it and then you have a playhead that you can actually go through. The really big version of this uh, online is called Blackbird. And it will let you do a complete edit, you know, with things that are being streamed into it live. Um, so you can re-edit and edit. You're not just clipping. You're really building a whole show, adding lower thirds, adding um, captions. All those things can be done in real time. Uh, and it's, but it's a much more expensive solution. Chris finishes up. Yeah, and I'm going to go the super low budget way. Although uh, I'm kind of counting on like volunteer staff. Uh, let's let's be real. You could have three people with laptops and like some sort of hardware-based recorder, a little, what are those things called? What's the black magic thing called? The stream, the deck, the deck, hyperdeck, hyperdeck. I should know these. Eventually I should learn some of these words. Uh, and you could just say, oh, that was a good thing. And just have that person stop. Somebody else is still recording. Once that guy trims and fixes his, then he goes back into record and you're kind of like just leapfrogging your way all the way through it. Super low budget, I realize. Uh, the stuff Alex was talking about sounds way cooler than my idea. All right, that takes us a little bit past the top of the hour, but into our second hour. And today we're kind of keeping things in-house. We're going to talk about what makes a studio. You know, we use that, we toss that term around a lot here. And really, the nature of it has changed. Once upon a time, a studio was a place we went to that was a commercial building, and we did all our work there. Well, certainly, even before COVID hit us, uh, people were starting to realize that the technology avail is available to be able to do much of what we used to do in studios at home or in a dedicated space that you controlled somewhere else. And you didn't have to go to somebody else's space in order to do audio or video or increasingly IP-based creative work. Um, so that thing that was once a commercial deal is now often home-based. And we thought it'd be interesting to take a look at where the personal studios came from, where it's going, and how you can participate if you aren't already, and just give you ideas if you are. Could mean a Zoom studio for doing what many of us do here on the show every day. Could mean something larger or even 
something smaller. Like we famously, Alex is a remote this week, and he's got a kit that he's using for coming in and doing telepresence from a remote thing that he can pack into a travel case. All of these are kind of part of what we'll be talking about today. So um, we're going to start out with Jason Bache, who Jason and I were talking about this. We're the two people who raised our hands and said, you know, we'll kind of lead this discussion. And Jason has a deck prepared for us with some ideas to kind of get the thinking started. And then we'll open it up for the panel to share their ideas and, of course, your questions as we move along. So think about those questions. Jason, dive into it. Take us away. All right, here we go. If I lose audio or video or anything, it's because the routing that I'm going to be doing is a little bit uh, interesting, shall we say. Um, so hopefully I won't lose anything. And um, I, I just I wanted to start with just kind of the concept. And at first I thought, well, how did my studio evolve over time? And that was a little bit too, I don't know, show and telly. And I wanted to get more abstract into the whole thing and and actually dive into the to the concept because I, I've had a lot of different components and I've had a lot of different arrangements of the same things. And it really got me thinking like in an abstract, what what, what really does make a studio? And the best that I could come up with was um, a place to, to take a creative process, to take anything in this case, you know, um, sparklers, and to turn it into something completely and totally polished. And the best way I could explain that would be something like this, this shot that I took from Disney World, where absolutely everything is, is completely and totally polished. So in short, if you take process and turn it into a product, um, that to me is, is really what a studio is. It's important to remember that the technical knowledge, like, you know, how these things come together and how they interact with each other is important, but it falls flat if it is a means to its own end. What we're really after here is, is like a way to systematize the things that we need to do in order to make them easy. So we can catch an idea, we can bottle it up, and then we can ship it out the door. That's what creative process to me actually means. And you know, this can have all sorts of different meanings just depending upon what you think of when you think of a studio. Creative space, you know, how to test things, um, buying hopefully not a lot of equipment like this thing at Ikea that, you know, tests their chairs. Um, but it can also just kind of be be more esoteric, like, well, okay, taking this piece and then moving to the next piece and consolidating and making sure you have the budget for something and then making sure you have the right cameras and the right camera placement and the right computers and the right way to, to refine it and to mix it down. It, it really, I mean, let's see if I can be even more elaborate here. Uh, what everything that goes into something can end up becoming, in this case, I think, uh, best possible way to offend a nerd? I don't know. I, I figured every single, yeah, every single sci-fi series right there just totally annihilated. It doesn't actually need to be technical, though. Uh, for example, my girlfriend works as a grant writer, and her studio comes in two different versions, um, regular and high-tech. And for those of you that missed the high-tech part of it, let me move myself over here. It's um, it's right here. Yes, that's right. 
all it takes. But, but, you know, again, it's her environment and it seems to work for her. So who's to say that's not a studio? I guess you could, you could give an argument either way. But um, the whole thought process started when I, I remembered a client of mine who had this incredibly beautiful studio. He had all sorts of just, just awesome stuff. And it, on this analog mixing board... Um, he had put a MacBook Pro with a FireWire lead um, and then a Thunderbolt lead and then a power lead. And then that was basically it. And I, I asked him, like, why, why do you have all this beautiful stuff? And uh, he, he basically said, well, people really like it when the lights move. But the entire thing was being run by, um, by that ProSonus rack mount that's what two above yeah two above the red rack and absolutely everything else was just for show i'm sorry it's the apollo below the tone piece um let me get another angle there kind of blew my mind this is not the right way to 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 create a studio it shouldn't all be for show um, I suppose if you built it to begin with that way sure why not but in short you know, you got a computer. Um, and does that necessarily mean you have a studio? I don't know. Um, that said, a lot of my best work has basically been little more than, you know, a, a, a hotel room and a sound card and a microphone. And that that's really been it. Well, but but, but I've got lots of computers and, and that's about it. You know, I've got to take my iPad and my, um, and my MacBook Pro and my iMac and I'm going to put it all together. And um, do I have a studio now? Well, I don't know. Let's ask, is it cake guy? In my opinion, no. I guess this is a subjective thing, but I'm going to go with no. Really, the purpose of a, of a studio isn't to show off all the tech stuff you have in one place. To me, at least, the purpose is to structure it. If you have more structure, things will end up making more sense to you, and it lets you pay more attention to the idea instead of the, the distractions, right? I've made a lot of money with a couple laptops and an encoder and a switcher and a recorder. Um... And, you know, this can cover all sorts of different facets of studios, right? I, I started looking at photos, by the way, total time suck if you've done a lot of builds. And it occurred to me that I've built a lot of studios, a lot for clients and a lot on my own. And it's been roughly 18 years of different builds. And although the purpose is different every single time I build something, there are, of course, you know, unifying factors. And at the end of the day, what matters is that each thing does what it's purpose built to do. That's, that's truly it. And then everything else is, is really just kind of noise. And along those lines, more things definitely don't mean more better. I've actually considerably sized my studio down over the years, and uh, I'll finish with I'll finish with just how simple it's it's managed to become. 
Um, but, you know, when you look at these various things, it, there are kind of harmonies. There are different things that, that also end up cropping up again and again. So, for example, um, the black shot is a friend of mine who, who had a, a cancer survivor's studio in Tribeca, and he asked me to build a broadcast studio. Uh, the one up above, I think, was NAB or CES one year. And then the two on the right were just, um, I don't know, various builds that I'd done over the years. Um, and, yeah, there are definitely similar components. And if we take those and then we start looking a little bit more carefully at them, we'll start to see the pattern. Um, we've got, you know various things put in various places for various purposes. And this isn't just the ones that I picked. I mean, really, like, take an even more elaborate series of shots, and you're still going to end up with the same ability to configure and reconfigure. And, uh, you know, you'll find harmonies again. So, you know, every studio, for example, is going to have ways to see more than you're showing your audience. Uh, ways to loop, play, replay, and um, ways to hear and process. In this case, I just picked a sound card and, you know, normalize, combine, and automate, and take all the things that you need to see and set them up in, in ways that may or may not be useful. Um, multiply video, multiply audio, multiplex, encode, control, decode, you know, take your pick, hear everything, you know, monitor everything, hear the things your audience is never going to hear, hear things that aren't even going to be recorded through comms. This is the kind of thing where the process actually matters more than any given project selectively connect things together. You know, networks are really good at this. Um, remix them, display them, redisplay them, redisplay them in, in weird little um, configurations because camera one just kind of likes to see this. That kind of thing is really an art and a science. Is Here's the rule. Uh, just because it's unique doesn't mean it's useful, okay? I, I've, over the years, built a whole bunch of studios. And it, at first I started, wow, how, how impressive is this going to look? And then it occurred to me that, that all I was doing was getting in my own way. So I'll, I'll wrap by, by showing you briefly what I ended up with. Let me see if I can do this switch and hopefully it won't mess with anything. Oh, uh, let's see, what is that? Three. Let's just do this in any time. So... This this is the space that I'm in right now, and I've been using it for, I don't know, maybe three weeks, maybe two, something like that. And there really isn't much in here. It looks like there is, but this room is huge compared to, um, compared to the amount of stuff that's in it. Uh, Computing-wise, there really, there are two displays, but it's it's no more than see, there it is. Three computers. Uh, an M2 Mini, an M1 Mini, uh, they both say M2, uh, an M1 Studio, 
and then a set of uh, OWC dual HDMI. And also there's an OWC Thunderbolt adapter off of the M1 Studio. And what that gives me is a series of switchability that allows me to run everything both through the switcher and on a 43-inch 4K display that does its own multiplexing. And I'll show that in just a second. So when I look out um, at all of you, what I see is, um, is this. I actually, I see the 5K studio display and then the Mac Mini M2, the Mac Mini M1, the Studio Mini second display, and then all of the multi-view that goes through the switcher. And what's neat about this is I can see all of the 4K, let me cut that back, let's see, there we go. I can see all of the 4K in 4K, but thanks to OWC and uh, the USB-C dual HDMI out, I can actually trick it and output the same thing in 4K and in 1080 so that there's no, there's, there's basically no, no latency and no need to do any scaling other than that. Oh, let's see, a little bit of color. Let's add some color, there we go. So th that's pretty much what I'm looking at. In addition, there's an Apple TV. There's um, an iPhone that I can do live. There's a super source. And um, let's see, a whole bunch of stuff. Audio, program preview, the, the, the whole nine yards. Actually, you know what? I think maybe I'll, I'll just see if I can show it to you live. How about that? Wouldn't that be fun? Let's do it. There we go. So yeah, that, this is what I'm seeing as I'm presenting to all of you. And this is how it ends up working out. It turns out the easiest way to not get confused when you've got seven displays plus eight throughputs is that, um, at least for me, because they're all Apple processors, I just actually made the wallpaper the computer that it is. So, you know, M1, M2, the second studio, um, mini, and then it actually has a third one that I'm, I'm looking at of the teleprompter, but um, that usually follows one or the other. So um, that really started to mess with me when I got into relaying things through the switcher. In the switcher, I wanted to be able to drag things between um, or share, sorry, share the keyboard and the mouse between all of the computers so that I didn't have to continuously switch and then wonder which mouse I'm connecting to and which one I'm using. Um, and in order to do that, I had to play with the routing quite a bit. So here's a blow up of that. And this is exactly how it looks. And then there we go. Yep. So now it's just a better sense of how it looks when I'm looking at it in real time. Very impressive, Jason. There's an amazing amount of work you've done there. How long did it take you to do all of this? Mm, what, set it up? Yeah, for, for the current iteration of your studio. You said you've just been in there a reasonably small amount of time. How long does it take you to set all something like that up? Um, I don't know, maybe two days, something no, like okay. that. 
So that's the process of doing this over and over again so that we go there. Uh, we've got a lot of people who are raising their hands here to dive into that. So we'll go back to Jason and ask more questions. I'm going to do just a couple of minutes about my journey. It's been similar and particularly the theme Jason hit on, which is that sometimes you get more and more complex and then you eventually have to get to the point where you are less complex and you try to figure out what's happening. Uh, this is the building that in Scottsdale that I put together. This was my studio. And this building, this whole thing here was my production facility. This front is actually uh, when we go inside and I'll do this real quick. You'll see the makeup area and some stuff. There was the office. Uh, the main production suite is back over here. There's a little voice booth back there. Uh, let's get to some of this stuff. So this is the inside. I built this out and this is the area I was getting bigger and bigger. So I had a full little uh, studio there. It's designed to shoot 16 by 9 a court toward the black wall, four by three, and toward the other wall. You'll see a little blue arrow down here and all that. That is into the makeup room, and you can see that here. So I had a little makeup area and a bathroom for the talent that was coming in. This is what was behind me for clients to sit in. There's my voice booth back in the big studio. This was my control room kind of area, and this area is what you were just looking at in terms of the stage. So lots of infrastructure, lots of build-out, build-out. Why? Because we were doing all sorts of things. Here we have a principal's office that we built for one of our educational clients on that set. Here's something we were doing for PetSmart. We created a manager's office in there. And all of this was about being able to do production without anything getting in our way so that we could just go inside the building. It was soundproof. The lighting was there. We also did photos. I mean, here's a quick photo setup. We did a bunch of stuff for uh, mobile phones at one point. And so it's a dual purpose studio that's designed to do what is necessary efficiently so that once you go into work, particularly if you have a cast of eight or 10 people and maybe executives there, you're burning a lot of money, particularly in salaries. If you've got a CEO and a company present there, you're just burning a lot of money through there. So um, a couple of years later, as I'm downsizing and turning my attention to something else, all of that came down to this. I'd spent about a year and a half still doing about 80% of the work I had done in the studio with the exception of the shooting part, but all the editing, all the producing for the web on a simple laptop with one external monitor over the course of it. Um, Eventually, I moved to a different place. I'm still on the road, and I had a slightly bigger monitor, but you're just seeing basically a laptop, an iPad to the left, and a phone to the right. And I'm developing a smaller footprint, but still a lot of capabilities as I'm moving into video over IP rather than traditional video. And eventually, I got to this in the place that I went through the pandemic with, and this is where I started coming into office hours. Started in my voice booth, but eventually got it down to this. And to be honest with you, this is really nothing more than what you saw in the first two slides. There's a laptop here in the middle. There's a larger monitor for checking things. There's an iPhone on this side and an iPad on that side. And that's all I really needed to do all the work on office hours that I did in my early days. Um, this is as office hours came, I started adding more video capabilities. So you've got a few lights, but basically the production thing is the same. I'm still on this small footprint. Eventually, I just compare it. This is where I used to sit in the old days and I needed all this stuff to make it work. 
this is what I got down to when I downsized and become more streaming and realized that I was going to be doing more on Zoom and more virtual than in the real world. And this is what I sit at today. This is, if you were standing behind me right now, you would basically see that. I mean, I've got a few more things. There's still a laptop. Now there's two screens on the two sides. There's a prompter monitor up here. There's my big display. I've got lighting here, here, and here. Um, but basically, everything is the same as all that complexity that I had for decades of production when I was running the bigger studio. And this, to me, feels right-sized. I don't really need more than this. I can take the two or three components that I really need to do something from a mobile thing. And um, I just think that the industry has changed. We've gotten more capabilities in smaller areas. Uh, so now let's go through some of the rest of the panelists who want to talk about their production sex. So Alex, start us off. You've had a gigantic journey through this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it all depends on, I think when you're looking at um, your studios, there are the individual studios. So I think I can actually um, just show a picture of the one that I'm in right now. This is... Sorry for doing the screen share. I won't keep it on very long. Can you guys see that? Okay. Absolutely. So anyway, so that is the that's the that is literally what I'm looking at right now, and that is a studio <laughs> that fits into a uh, Pelican case. You can see the Pelican case over there. That's a 1510 Air, and um, that is all you know. All that gear kind of folds up, and there's a lot more. There's lights and stuff that I'm not using right now, and so so that is about as small as it gets. Um, and then of course we've built studios that are. You know, million, million, million and a half dollar studios that are that so it's still small in the world of, of, of broadcast studios, but they get a lot bigger than that. Um, the the main thing you're thinking about is who's going to use it, how many cameras you're going to use, how many. So my my home studio and and this little mobile studio are all built for one person. And that's me, um, uh, and so. The ergonomics of them and how everything is kind of laid out is all designed for a single person. As it gets bigger, we have to say, okay, do we want to be able to bring in two or three people or three or four people and have them talk to each other? Do we want to demo things? So demos mean that we're going to put cameras in the ceiling. Um, do we want to, so we're going to have multi-camera. If we, As soon as we go to more than one person, typically we're talking about three cameras um, and potentially four. So four cameras for us are one in the center that can, it's usually a PPZ, but one in the center that can move around, one that's going to be locked as a wide, and then two, you know, shots that are crossing um, across there. And those are going to be the three or four cameras that we're actually going to use there, then potentially an overhead PPZ camera that we might hang if we're going to be doing demos. Um, and so those are the, you know, and that starts to become, you know, we have multi-camera shots, uh, we're moving back and forth, do we want a telestrator? Do we want um, you know, do we want to show a graphic behind folks? Um, I'm not a big fan in studios of, uh, I don't like a lot of monitors back there. I feel like there are a lot to manage. Um, and so some people like putting a lot of monitors in the back. I don't, I don't. <laughs> so I like physical things uh, behind, behind our, our folks. And we build a lot of modular stages that allow for that. So, but it's also deciding what do the people on air have to pay attention to. So some of the sh studios we've built, we need them to be able to click on a couple things and make decisions. A lot of times we go through a lot of trouble to hand machine or print um, buttons and everything else. So it's very clear to them what to do. They don't have to understand how a switcher works. They just see a button of the computer. You push the button and you're going to get a computer. <laughs> you push the button and you're going to get you. Um, you know, and so we, we do a lot of those things to make it easier. Um, we almost always separate our control room when it's not a one-person show. When it's a two-person show, we separate our control room from the um, stage itself. So we have all the equipment that's creating heat and sound and people talking are in another room. 
um, so that so that we can allow the space to be as clean as possible. We really like using uh, PDZs, and the reason for it is because it's less people, less noise, and less eye lines. So the the p- folks aren't tempted to look at people in the studio. They're looking at the cameras. They're looking at, at stuff there. So those those are some of the things that we um, start to think about um, with those studios. Again, I've talked about it in the past whether we're building a mobile studio or another studio, like I have a whole set of gear laying here that I didn't use. I build everything at about 40%, uh, 40% capacity. Everything the client asks for, the studio can do with about 40% of the gear that I brought in to put it in there. And then as they ask for more things, we keep on adding. That usually comes down to routers, to patch bays, to extra switchers, to you know the, what kind of mixers we're using. All of those things are things that are important. And then finally, I'll just say that it's important to think about comms. How are you going to be able to talk to people in their ears? Um, those can be very basic, but you really, I think that's one of the things we see when people first build their first studio for other people. The, the last thing they put in there is comms and it's, it's, it's useful. <laughs> so it's, that's, that's the last thing I'll say there. Uh, Jeffrey Powers. With studios, um, the, the interesting thing about studios is the ever change and, of course, the explosion of the new studio. And that's what I'm going to talk about really quick. And I will show you about very quick on my, my studio. But I've been finding that there's a lot of people that have been diverting from the standard need the lights, need the, uh, need the, the microphone like this and going towards this type of studio right here where they're setting up vertical video, they're doing live TikToks, they're doing, they're doing Amazon. Uh, of course, I am an Amazon uh, uh, live streamer. Uh, and of course, Prime Days is coming up on Tuesday, Wednesday. It's a big event for everybody. So I've been looking at a lot of people's studios as how they do that in, in their home. Therefore, uh, a lot of them are also working on uh, vertical video. And I know that there are some studios out there, people creating studios that are going to be 100% vertical. There is going to be no horizontal content that's going to be coming out of these studios at all. So they want to make sure that everything that they do is going to cater to- towards that vertical content. So these are the different things that uh, that are just going to be exploding in the next couple of years. But, you know, and I know that within the next few years, we're going to have a room in most houses that's going to be dedicated not only for studios, but also for virtual learning, also for in-office learning and things like that. Now, I said Amazon, this is a this is a big event, so I've kind of expanded my studio. And I'm going to show you, and I'm, going to, I'm actually going to use the, the new Stream Deck app uh, to show you my full studio because I basically have two locations in my house. This is my production area. So if I have somebody else doing a show, I, I actually work from here. But if I'm down in my studio, I can then uh, bring that in. And of course, it's not working. It stopped working. So we'll just do it the old-fashioned way. There we go. So this is my studio down there. That is Simon. Uh, yeah, Simon, he is my stand-in from when I don't, uh, I can't be at my studio. I've got PTZ cameras all over the place, so I can move this uh, this camera around. And then, of course, if I want to switch over to another shot, let's do the over uh, the over the shoulder shot. I've got that, and I can bring that in. I've got 
I just uh, got done talking about the Donner PCO2, which is an audio interface, and I've actually put it into my studio from there. And then, of course, this is what I normally see with a big 50-inch uh, TV. You'll see that there's, uh, there's a piece of, I was talking earlier, uh, last hour, about the uh, insulation. That's what's right behind it. That's the... Uh, that's the, the reflective side. And then, of course, the PTZ camera is just uh, pulling from, from there. And then if I want to, I can go over to my 3D printer and show off some of the 3D prints that are going from there. I also have, uh, and the next studio that I just set up, this is very temporary. This is in my multi-season porch. I'm going to have products that are uh, one PTZ camera that are showing off different products. And then once again, I've got all the, I'm controlling this all from this desk that I, that I was at, uh, showing off all the products that I'll be, uh, we'll be talking about from there. With that said, I take it on the high end of production. And like I said, there's a lot of people that are taking the low end of production. I'm working with, uh, with a person that's got two iPhones, one pointed at them and one pointed at their product. I will be, I will be using uh, Zoom ISO. They'll be, uh, or, yeah, Zoom ISO. They'll be coming in through Zoom with the two cameras. I'll be bringing it into uh, vMix here, and I will be doing the switching and then sending back out from there, including bringing different types of graphics. You know, like uh, I have a, a few different sets of graphics here that, of course, are not working, but uh, you get the idea. It is how you need to do it and how it works for you. I've seen, like, for instance, Charlie Burns, who is a Wisconsin uh, TikToker. He uses all red cameras for when he does his, his TikToks. But people are just as successful with using their, the latest iPhones and iPads and getting the content out there. So studios have changed immensely. And we're going we're gonna to see it even more because we haven't really seen good 360s studios come out uh, for regular content. It, you can go to big production areas and find big, uh, you can find 360 that way. But home studios in 360 are, are going to be a good trend coming out as well. Courtney Gooden. Well, there was a question in earlier that got deleted. I don't know why that, that said, what makes a studio and what does a studio make? And the two, the second question needs to be answered before the first question uh, is depends on what you're making in that studio. If you're a musician, uh, like Jeffrey, and you want to make your own music and do your own engineering, you know, there's a whole special set of circumstances. The first thing you want to do is sound isolation. You want to make sure that the sound from the outside world isn't leaking into your studio so that you don't, don't have to deal with, you know, the guy mowing his lawn next door or the kids playing out in the front yard. So sound isolation is important. The next thing is to sound treatment, which is how it sounds inside the studio. If you're a musician, I've been to a lot of celebrity musicians' homes who have built their own studios in a garage or a barn or even a separate bedroom or a living room in some case, cases. And they bring in the sound isolation. Well, a lot of them live you know, far away from other people. So they don't have to worry too much about sound isolation other than airplanes. But they have treatments where they can make it a dead room or a live room. They can adjust the reflectivity. They'll have baffles that are on wheels that you can rotate and put them uh, soft side out or hard side out with uh, maybe a nice wood veneer on them uh, to reflect sound so they can control the echo characteristics of the room and the reverb of the room, which gives them a more pleasing sound than just a completely dead studio. 
Uh, myself, I've been working in production for 50 years, but most of my production has been on location. So I'm usually on a set somewhere or even in somebody's home recording them uh, in their home. So there's not a lot that I can do to bring with me to modify someone's home. We just try and find a, a quiet space with a lot of soft stuff in the walls and floors and ceiling uh, to get the uh, as clean a sound as we can. If you're building your own studio for streaming, that's something else entirely. Uh, for video, then you have to deal with, you know, what's in the background. Uh, myself, I'm just sitting in my living room, so I don't really have a studio. This is what I'm looking at. Um, these uh, three monitors, one's used for comms, that, that little tablet on the left, and the computers are down below, down here. You can't see them. That's the Dell there, and there's a, a couple of others as well. And then my uh, ATEM Mini is off to the right along with the Roadcaster Pro, so I can sit there and have control over everything. But the problem is you're not isolated from the uh, – Equipment, And that's uh, Alex brought that up somewhat. Uh, if you're going to design a professional studio, and I would not consider my setup a professional studio, I don't record any voiceover stuff here for, for professional work. If I did, it would require extensive uh, noise reduction in post-production uh, to remove the sounds of the garbage trucks out front or the neighbors that are get out the leaf blowers. But um so it's, yeah, you don't want to stop production every time a plane flies over. So those are a lot of considerations to take into account. If you're doing a, a studio for a sculptor or a painter, light is all the important part. And uh, a southern facing windows that are high in the room makes very flattering light if you're going to have a subject in front of you that you're painting or a sculptor that you're sculpting. So take that into consideration, lighting for that type of studio. So it depends on the type of studio you're doing. And Bill, I thought I was very impressed by your video studio setup that you had uh, where you could do corporate videos with uh, the ability to actually build sets inside in a, in a fairly compact uh, uh urban situation or suburban situation very impressed yeah it was very 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 convenient to be able to ask a corporate client you know come here we'll get it done and it doesn't matter i mean other than direct hail on the roof i we built that with five layers between the outside and the inside because as courtney brought up sound is a critical thing in some studio circumstances mitchell dive in i'll, I'll make this a one minute uh, uh demo I built this room for myself. Before that, I had the big studio with the big uh, uh, switchers and all that. And now I'm pretty much uh, in a room here that's uh, suited to my setup. Uh, that's where I do my business. Here's where I do my zooming. Got a nice little uh, AKG, and it's out of the out of the uh, the camera range. There's my ATEM. There's my uh, mute switch. Um, if we go around, you can see the uh, the 32 button, uh, 62 button, whatever the heck it is. Uh, and then as I go over, there's where I do my editing. Yes, that's an old cinema display, Chris. Don't have to uh, get on my case about it. And as I continue on over, uh, this is where I do my voiceover work. And uh, I have a console here, um, a relatively good microphone in the U87. And then back here uh, is the rack for all my audio uh, gear. And um, there's my uh, Neve and Denon and the Matrix switcher. And um, one other quick thing, uh, the treatment, um, I built the walls out in here, just as Alex was explaining earlier, to provide um, a uh, uh, almost like a panel there to uh, uh, buffer the uh, base and to get the sound from above. I dropped the ceiling in, and I put these uh, drop-in uh, uh, acoustic uh, 
baffles, which uh, really deaden the sound, and I've got them sort of centered over the uh, console area where I do the voiceover work. And that's pretty much it. You can see a lot of different approaches because, as I think has been brought up time and time again, everybody has different needs. The whole fun, the whole point of the modern era is that a lot of this stuff that used to be incredibly expensive to bring in, well, a camera used to cost me thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000, and now we have much better cameras at way smaller price points. So it is possible to do something like a fully professional rig for your home that'll put out a signal that looks as good as office hours looks every day, which I think is pretty stellar from anywhere. It just takes a combination of uh, some money to invest and, you know, nothing is free in the world. You can do it with just an iPhone, but even that costs you some money. Uh, With just that and the techniques of being able to solve problems through thinking them through rather than throwing money at them, I think is also another big thing. Uh, We've got a few questions backing up here. We've, We've gone through that and everybody will weigh in on them as we go. So let's get to our first question. Sure. From uh, Andy Kokendorfer in Vieira, Florida. Andy asks, I use a parabolic softbox with grid as a primary light, but I notice that most on office hours use a flat light panel. Does the parabolic softbox make makes enough difference to justify the space? Alex, start us off. You know, it's a lot of space. It takes up a lot of space. I'm not sure if it definitely, I mean, we've definitely used those, but nowadays, a lot of times what's important is just a really large source. The parabolic, really, what it gave you was the ability to pack into something very small because you have a small head and then you have a huge softbox that sits on top of that head. Um, A lot of us, as LEDs became more popular, a lot of us um, went to something a little bit more flat because the LED can carry the light pads that I use, for instance. Those are, you know, three inches thick um, at at most when they're unfolded. Um, And so, uh, and then the ones that I use at home, all I did was build a frame. uh, And that was a frame that was three feet by five feet with... um, uh, with maker pipe, which is the EMT and some corners. And I hung it from my, from, from where I had it. And then I have lights behind it hitting it. Um, and I've got a couple of, uh, the, um, uh, the NAN lights, uh, that are hitting that. And that basically I'm just illuminating it. So it doesn't really matter. I, I I'm still taking up a fair bit of space because those lights, as I move them away from that, from that source or that, that in between, they have, of course, are softening across that all, that whole piece. So a big soft source is what's important as you start to work on that. Um, and, uh, so I think that you're the, the nice thing that you're getting out of that is that it's compact to move around. I probably wouldn't use it in a studio just because it takes up a lot of space and I'd, I'd rather use that space in other ways. Yeah, I'm going to agree. Oh, Courtney, start out. Go ahead, Courtney. I was just going to say, if you do use whichever you use, either a, a, a flat panel or or the big uh, parabolic softbox, is to get a grid. Because if you're in a fairly tight situation, the grid can still give you the soft light on the person, but it can keep the light uh, from falling onto the background. So if you want to get good contrast between yourself and the background, the grid is the way to go because it can control the spill from that soft light and prevent you from lighting up the whole room to the same level. Absolutely. And uh, in fact, let me switch back to this thing. You can see that I'm actually using a combination. Up here, you see the large, relatively deep um, 
strip light with a fabric grid on the front to control spill off of that. But I'm also that 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 is so high up that I like the overall fill. It's keeping it off the wall behind me. That's why it's tilted down. But these two little panel lights, flat panels, if I were to try to use something deeper for my facial fill light, um, they would be a real problem because you can see that it's starting to get really crowded on the desktop. So anything that has depth to it is a hassle to move around. Both of these actually are on little uh, stands that can be swung in. So I actually swing them out occasionally and swing them back in depending on whether I'm doing Zoom or not. So um, there's a lot of new types of lights that make things real easy. These color balanced flat panels that have kind of come in the, the last five years or so are much better than the early LED light sources. And they're just uh, really convenient to have around. At least I find them that way. Let's go to the next question. From Jeff Cohen in Miami Beach, Florida. Jason, can you describe the wall panel behind you? Jason? Yes, I'm happy to do that. Let me start by saying the wall paneling you're going to see is slowly getting fired. Um, I thought it was going to be a good idea, but it didn't actually end up working nearly as well, probably because I didn't add enough of it. Um, so if you go to Sam's Club and you get yoga floor mat paneling, um, what you'll get is this alternate you know, faux gray wood stuff and on the other side of it is this black grippy, you know, with tiny little diffusers. And um, I thought it would be able to cut the sound out. I bought 10 or so of them. And, yep, n not, not fantastic, at least not yet. So we'll see. All right, thanks. Next question. Next question in from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, PA. Josh asked, moving away from the gear, what studio room and environment considerations need to be accounted for? For example, sound treatment for audio, temperature to accommodate people and equipment, accessibility for ingress, etc. All big questions and good ones that you're asking. Alex Lindsay, start us off. Yeah, I think that what Josh brings up is something that a lot of people don't think about, um, is really how are we going to get in and out of the room? So how, and it's funny, you think that it, uh, a standard 30-inch jam or 20-inch jam is going to be enough, but a lot of times you find you can't get desks in and out and so on and so forth. So you do have to think about that. Um, heat is a big issue. If you start turning lights on and having people in there, uh, it's going to start getting warmer, and you have to pay attention to even where windows are because those windows may be heat generators as the sun goes through them. Um, so understanding where that is, uh, it's not just having AC, but can the AC be turned on and off because a lot of times it makes noise. So you, can you turn that on and off? Is it making noise as you go through that? Um, hard surfaces become important. One of the things that, that was mentioned a little earlier uh, that Jeffrey talked about is raising the floor a little bit. Um, we use those and those, a lot of those have openings um, in those floor sections. So they're two foot by two foot with little corner openings and we can run all our cables underneath them too. So with studios, a lot of times we'll raise them up uh, an inch, two inches, three inches up and then we can run all our cables underneath it. Um, sitting in a room, one of the things that I've learned to do is sit in a room and just work, just get a folding table and just work all day and listen to what the sounds are like. Um, are you hearing things from outside? Are you, you know, what, what it is, you know, what are the kind of things that are going on there um, are definitely things that are important. Is there HVAC somewhere in the building that you can hear occasionally or something like that? And sometimes you really want to think through those things uh, over, over a long period of time. Um, to make that work. And we've even let, set recorders in there and let them record for a couple of days. And then what we do is we normalize it. So it brings everything up 
and then we look at it all and see what's what's going on there. And um, we can just scan through it because you can see the waveform and see like what what is the noise that's happening there, and try to dig through that if we're going to do a big install uh, into a location. Uh, Jeffrey Powers. Yeah, I totally agree on all of that uh, because uh, you never know what's going to happen. Of course, home studios, there's only so much you can do. The, the trash truck comes by, somebody decides to mow the lawn, and the lawnmower is like 30 years old and, and kicks up every every 10 seconds or something like that. Uh, so you, you just have to do what you can do. And then, of course, it's all about that room. Uh, as Alex said, how do you get in? How do you get out? How is it, how is it going to be heated or cooled or, or anything like that? I'm going to add to the fact, is it upstairs? Is it downstairs? Is it in the basement? Uh, my studio has actually gone through four different rooms. And right now it's technically in the basement. So, And, and we've talked, we talked about this in, uh, earlier about the whole... Uh, about about what to what to put on the side. I talked about the plastic, and I wanted to show that really quick because it's right there. Uh, so I have some plastic, I have some foam, I have uh, slats right behind that plastic to keep it uh, get air gap from the wall, and then of course the uh, the the reflective uh, uh, the reflective um, insulation off of there. And uh, and bring that in. So a lot of these different things will help with uh, with any taking care of any of the sounds or anything like that. I don't have to worry as much about what's happening on the street level, but because I am in the basement, but I do have to worry about the HVAC kicking in because, like I said, we had all this duct work that was going through there, and you're not here. You're not not only hearing the AC kick in, but when it's done. All of a sudden, everything starts to settle back down. So you hear these little pops and knocks coming from there. And then, of course, if somebody was walking on the floor upstairs, that that can uh, project as well through that uh, too. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, HVAC is one of the things a lot of people overlook when they're building a, a trying to build a silent sound booth or a sound studio in their home. They get in there and they close the door, and then they realize gee, there's no air coming into this room. And after about an hour of being in there, the carbon dioxide level builds up and you start to get woozy. So you got to have air circulation without bringing in audio from the outside. And so that can take, that can be difficult sometimes. If you are, if you do have an air handling system, they do make air handlers that are uh, low volume, not high velocity, they're uh, high volume, low velocity. So they have large vents uh, with usually with, not uh, especially designed louvers that are designed not to make noise. And the air handler, uh, you know, the squirrel cage blower is positioned far away and it moves the air at a slow volume. So is it not to uh, create whistling noises or sound of, sound of the air conditioning system being handled? And remember, you also have to have a return for a sealed, you know, if you have a sealed room, uh, you have to have a way for that hot air to get back out. So if you have air conditioning in there that you want to leave on while you're recording, uh, you're going to have to make a lot of uh, concessions there and it could cost a lot of money. So take that into account. Actually, a good noise removal system these days with AI noise removal can help you with that. You might be able to leave the air conditioning on and just filter out the noise later. So it's getting cheaper and cheaper to do that. Mitch Hill. Yeah, just considering the space, when I decided to move everything home, I got a condo and the condo was bare. There was nothing on the wall. So I was able to float the walls and the ceiling. Um, I was able to take the HVAC duct 
and have it run a 90-degree turn before it came into the room. And I also bought a HVAC unit that would let the air spill into the room as opposed to blow into the room, which cuts down the noise there. And a drop ceiling over above the floating ceiling uh, allows me to put whatever materials I want in the ceiling. So the the cool thing is to consider the space that you're going into, and I think that's the part of Josh's question, is that uh, once you have that room, you can build any number of different studio configurations inside of the room once you know you've taken care of sound and heating and air conditioning, all those environmental things. Let's go to the next question. Next one in from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Traditionally, control rooms have been part of a studio, but now we have equipment at home that matches the old control rooms. Do we need new terms like desktop video was used to explain our home studio? Alex, what say you? I mean, usually we call them home studios. I, I've had a tendency to refer to them as my my uh, my video cockpit. <laughs> I know there's a website called that too, but but it's just like it feels it, it it feels much more like a cockpit at this point because I keep on adding stream decks and I keep on adding other buttons and things and all these little things that I want to do. Um, but I yeah, I don't have a term for it yet. But I will say that a lot of us that are building these home studios, and of course I've worked on everything from my house and. The one thing I will say is that our house, and this is a, somewhat of a side subject, is I tear mine apart like I've torn mine apart. This next week, I'm going to have to put it back together again. Um, and uh, uh, I think that, you know, as we keep on rebuilding these, they are turning into their own production units. Um, I think one of the things we do have to think about that I'm starting to think about is how does someone potentially come in remotely and control them for you? So if you're building something that's much more complex, I am getting to the point where I'm doing uh, presentations where I'm jumping between four or five different computers and telestrating and cutting overheads and everything else. And I, I'm like, you know, it might be good at some point to have somebody else cutting <laughs> while I'm trying to talk. Uh, it is starting to get a little bit much. Jeffrey. So it's very interesting you, you said that because at Infocom, I actually did, I was uh, monitoring a panel about the new production room inside of the home. And we talked about, and I even had a, a slideshow in memoriam of products that uh, you don't normally see in a studio nowadays. And of course, we had the home setups. We talked about audio home setups. We talked about video home setups and uh, and uh, for education, for everything. And it's just, it's just amazing. And of course, the, the products, you know, I don't have like a, a black magic switcher or a raw switcher or anything like that on my desk, but I feel that I have the ability to do as much with the software as I can with the hardware. Uh, there are, of course, there's always going to be a limitation off of that. So, but it's, it, to, for terms, I think everything is just going to have the word virtual in front of, in front of the uh, device, right? And it's not tape record anymore. It's video record. Chris Fenwick. I call it my desk. That's all it is. It's just my desk. It's nothing is more it than that. It's a smart desk now, though. It's not Chris? a cockpit. It's not a studio. It's a desk. Sit down at your desk and go to work. There you go. Courtney Gooden. Yeah, I think another thing to consider is uh, with all the one man studios out there is to buy equipment that has a remote interface to it, like an X32 rack. Uh, so you can put all the stuff that has the fans in it in a closet or somewhere further away so you can isolate the sound of that equipment, yet still control it over an app that runs on an iPad uh, or a remote screen over a silent running fanless computer. Uh, so that you can control almost a, a whole lot of audio equipment these days comes with uh, things that let you control it, including all the ATEM software, uh, all the ATEM hardware, I mean, 
and uh, you know, Stream Deck, those kinds of things let you operate all your equipment and keep it at a distance. So if you need to tweak something, you can do it through the app without having to have the noise-making uh, stack of equipment sitting right next to you. Uh, let's go to the next question. Josh Kaufman, Pittsburgh, PA, asking, if you had the choice to build a studio from the ground up, what factors are important for location? For example, city zoning, proximity to people or processes, environmental factors, expenses, etc. Jason Bates, start us off. I'll start with, um, I would want to build somewhere where there is no HOA so I could build the way that I wanted to. I would start next with the proximity to the street, how long, how far away it was from traffic. Third, of course, I wouldn't want to be anywhere near an airport. And I guess forget all that. And I'm going to start by renaming the number one. I need screaming fast internet and hopefully opened or pre-conduited walls so I wouldn't have to drag any wires through there. Jeffrey Powers. We actually had a uh, Office Hours uh, member that had a problem with the Homeowners Association. So if you're building a home studio, that's one factor that you really have to bring into play is where you're located and if there's any regulations uh, when it comes to bringing in power, when it comes to bringing in production gear, if, it, if you've got your own vehicle, if you've got uh, whatever. So you, you might want to read through all of those little terms and conditions as well. And uh, Alex Lindsay. Yeah, some of it is also like what makes sense. I mean, in all the studios that we built, sometimes it's what makes sense. And how do the, how do the guests, if you're having guests, feel when they're not in the studio? So um, thinking about enough space for green rooms, enough space for them to hang out. Uh, I've been in some incredible studios that you walk out and you're in an incredible space, you know, in wine country, <laughs> you know, and then you get to hang out and then you go, you dig back into this, into this hole that is the studio. And it's a great place to kind of relax and, and, and spread out a little bit. Some people have their studios connected to a, to another house, uh, to a, to a, you know, a pool, to all kinds of other things. So when you think about those spaces, depending on how big you're building it, um, think about those things as well. Um, for, for me, you know, if, you know, if I was going to build it from scratch, I'd build it straight into the ground. <laughs> so I would just dig, I have a lower yard that I keep on eyeing that it will take me three years, I think in Marin to, uh, get the permits to do it. But when we talk about homeowners association, but I just want to dig down into the ground because it'll stay nice and cool and it will be very, very quiet. <laughs> so, so I think that those things will be perfect for me. We'll see. Courtney. Yeah, and if you're building a studio from the ground up, uh, think of building a floating studio with uh, talk to your architect and have a room within a room that's floating on uh, rubber supports uh, that isolate it from the background. Because these days there's lots of guys driving around on these 1200cc ego massagers out there that uh, tend to like uh, to make their motorcycles sound really loud and drive around constantly. But there are, you'd be surprised at the number of high-end sound recording studios that a lot of hit records were recorded uh, right here in this neighborhood that are right on Sunset Boulevard or right on major thoroughfares, but they're built with the right sound isolation that they don't have a problem with traffic or noise. Don't build near an alley <laughs> because, uh, or a corner property may not be good because you have twice the, tree, the street exposure. And remember, garbage trucks are going up and down alleys all the time. 
Yeah, I'll double down on any of that very quickly. When I built the studio, the walls are incredibly thick. They were not pierced by anything. All of our wiring inside the studio was surface mount, so we didn't have to pierce that, and that was purely for sound. Uh, the other thing was HVAC, which uh, the new split units are much quieter, but you, if you want... If you're in an environment like I was in Arizona where air conditioning is mission critical, getting silent air handling in your studio can be a huge boon. All right, let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, Alex, I like the layout of your mobile setup. What MacBook Pro stand are you using? Oh, this is a brew. Hold on, I'm just going to grab it. It's B-R-O-C-O-O-N. Um, Brocone or Brocoon. It's, you know, it's something I found on, on YouTube. And it, not on YouTube, on Amazon. It just unfolds. So it, it literally just kind of pulls open and goes almost flat. And it's, so it's great for traveling. And uh, it raises that, that laptop, as you saw, up, up a lot, uh, which made a huge difference. I used to balance things on cases and sometimes on ice ice little ice things from the hotel uh and this is this is much nicer yeah i think there are more of those fold-out stands i use one too when i'm on the road we had a large uh influx of questions at the tail end of things and we're not going to get them so i just wanted to make sure that you know the questions will be sent back to you if you put something in and we're not going to have time to get to it today hold on to them bring them back on monday throughout the rest of the week we can definitely address these kind of questions it doesn't have to be today uh so that's going to take us kind of up to the end of the show thank you all this has been a fascinating discussion i know we brought up as many questions as we probably answered, which is exactly the function of office hours sometimes. We want to engender a discussion of everything. I want to say thank you to Jason for his fabulous presentation at the beginning and for everybody else who tossed in, you know, revealing behind the scenes is always a, you know, to me, it's like, is my wiring clean enough and everything. And I just really appreciate this, the office hours spirit where people come here and say, I'm going to share things, warts and all. If I didn't do it right, that's okay. Somebody will learn from that as well. So huge, big deal. Don't forget, tomorrow's Saturday, Accessibility Saturday uh, for the summer here. Tomorrow we're talking about neurodiversity, cognitive disabilities, and mental health. This has been a fascinating series, and if you've got time to, to dive in and listen tomorrow, please do so. It's a great series of exploration over the summer for our Education Day. Also, thanks to the producers, all of you who put questions in today, for the crew in the back end who show up every day and do this, thank you so much, and to our... Um, to everybody, to the panelists especially today, thank you so much. After Hours starts right now. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. Keynote with SVG is amazing. I'm cool. Going to, I'm going to the beach. Just you know. Do it. Sunscreen, Alex. Sunscreen. Time I go to the beach, they try to roll me back in the water. Thank you, everybody, for being here, panelists. I couldn't have done this week without you. <sighs> I forgot how many bananas we used today. A lot. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. 30, 37,000. We didn't go that far today because we had mostly panelists, but cool yeah they don't make a lot of noise either that's right silent bananas <laughs>